welcome to episode 59 of the Swamp Flicks podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm Brittany Lombas. And we are recording in 7th Ward, New Orleans. And I just spent four days at the convention center in downtown New Orleans. Um, how was that? It was awesome. It was for the uh, American Library Association's National Conference, which... It's huge. It took over most of the convention center. Like, it was at the same time as the uh, PTA conference. <laughs> and... Uh, I swear like 70% of the place was the ALA thing and it okay. just went on for like miles. It seemed like of like free books and signings and Ugh. lectures and all kinds of stuff. Beautiful. So in the middle of this sprawling librarian business extravaganza, there was this one little square area they called the zine pavilion. And it was basically like a, just a tiny zine convention in the middle of the larger convention. So it was like two squares of tables and a lot of local zine makers were there for that. Some people from out of town, but a lot of it was local. And we sold zines as if it was like a normal, like kind of punk convention, like in the middle of this larger event. So it was really bizarre. <laughs> uh, you know, there's like time to go around and explore and pick up free books from other people and go attend things. But mostly I just explained what zines were to librarians from all over the country all weekend and we sold and gave away a total of like 70 zines from the website. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. And it's to people from all over and, yeah, and the, it's cool. The thing is the people that go to like the ALA convention are all like, it's serious, like a yeah. serious thing because I really want to see Michelle Obama and hear her speech. And if you were like a non-member, that fee was like a very insane amount of money. Because it's, like, meant for, like, hardcore, like, librarians, not just, like, Joe off the street can't, like, pay 20 bucks to, like, get in kind of thing. I think to get on the floor was $150. Mm-hmm. And you could pick up at least that much in books while Which you're there. Which is amazing, yeah. yeah. But I guess it was, like, a, a serious thing. Yeah. A serious librarian adventure. It was a business thing, right? So, like... I believe so. A couple of the purchases that we had, people were, like, how much for all of them? I was like, well, what do you mean? Like, oh, like one copy of each of your zines. Because they're like trying to build like these like zine libraries. Oh, that's so cool. And that's what the pavilion was trying to like promote too, was that this is like a good activity for like teens to have in their library system. Yeah. And just the whole idea of like self-publishing and like DIY, almost like arts and crafts like kind of activities. Like you don't need like thousands of dollars to do it. Like you can yeah. just use your creativity. And, and a Xerox machine. A Xero- yeah, that's yeah. pretty awesome. So, yeah, it was really sweet, and I met a bunch of, like, really cool punk nerds uh, in that area, and then a bunch of, like, less punk nerds elsewhere in the convention. And, yeah, I would totally go again. And if you're in a city where, like, the ALA convention's coming your way, uh, check out zinepavilion.tumblr.com. I think they also have a Twitter, too, and they're total sweethearts and are trying to bring a, like, really cool DIY tradition into this, like, larger thing that would actually, like, fund it and make it self-sustaining in a cool way. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. Well, because of that, I haven't been watching that much stuff lately because <laughs> I was very busy with that end of things. Gotcha. Uh, what have you been watching movie-wise? So I have like an addiction to Hereditary right now. <laughs> I've seen it twice. What? Um, <laughs> I'm probably going to go see it again. Like Different groups of people I know are like, oh, I'm going to go see it. And I'm like, I'll join you. I'll join you. Well, the first time I saw it, it was the last showing at like 9.50 at night at the Broad Theater. And I just decided, oh, I'm not doing anything right now. I really want to see this movie. I'll go. Well, it was such like an emotional experience where I was just expecting it to be like a horror movie. And I didn't really feel like it was a horror movie. It's like a family drama. Right. 
like I left crying (laughs) the biggest I don't want to like I mean I feel like you can't really talk about it too much without giving a crap ton away but the son in the film and I can't think of this guy's name was he like a former Nickelodeon actor he looks like he would have been yeah he kind of looks like Josh Peck but it's not him Hmm. but he's been in a lot of like recent stuff lately like he's like an up-and-coming guy Alex Wolf yes that guy just his whole like demeanor throughout the film was just very like ugh, like he drew me in where there's a something that he does that is totally life-changing in the beginning and the emotion he feels for that where he's just sort of in this state of shock and he's high at the same time and shocked and it kind of made sense of like what he did even though it doesn't seem like something people would do in the situation he was in stuff like that and tony collette my homegirl yeah that's like one of your favorite actors yeah, right totally i was so excited we were just talking about Mar- mariel's wedding um so from going to playing you know this happy-go-lucky abba fan in mariel's wedding to being a mom of a crazy freaking family yeah is this a is huge a shift. little more like united states of terra energy but it's like right really morbid so she's done like spooky stuff before but like not super spooky like this but she is like there's a a dinner scene where she yells at her son and it just like threw me back like i felt like i was in like a 3d film and i like got pushed back into my seat where i was like (laughs) holy shit like i felt like she was yelling at me um so it was it was just so good it was so good um and seeing it the second time around there was even more stuff that I missed, like little tiny things in the background. And it wasn't as like emotional for me the second time. I was more like freaked out, I guess. Like all the freaky stuff started to get to me on the second time around where it didn't really hit me for the first time around. Yeah, I know there's like a lot of characters and just like little bits of information like at the corners of the frame and things. Yeah. You have to kind of look, know and where to so, look. It's so pretty. Like there's this old like craftsman home and it's just like gorgeous and you know everything's a little messy but clean at the same time it just oof, love it but there's like just weird stuff where I'm like what does this mean like I know like a lot of the lore that's explored in the movie is pretty accurate so that was kind of interesting like I paid more attention to that the second time that I watched that so that's definitely more like um, stuff I need to look into like what do all the birds mean like there's a bunch of bird crap going on in there I know someone who mentioned that they knew what was going to show up. I don't want to spoil what it is, but there's like a supernatural thing that shows up late in the film and they knew that it was coming because they recognized a symbol that was like hand drawn on different objects. Yeah. And they're like, oh yeah, I've already studied that. So I knew that was coming. Oh my God. Yeah. I I would have never known. (laughs) Because it's like, it's insane. It's just like all these tiny little things like must all mean something. But then there's like other stuff I noticed, like... In this, in the son's room, there's like a piano that's like kind of tilted, like it's not like upright to where he plays it. It's kind of like pushed back. And then like in this crazy scene at the end, which takes place in like the last twenty minutes, where everything goes like batshit crazy, like the piano gets turned over. Oh, weird. And I was like, what the hell does this mean? Is that a thing? I don't know. <laughs> I'm gonna try to find out. Anyways, so I'm on a hereditary kick right now. I need to see it a second time. I didn't realize so it was going to be so long the first time I watched it. So it's it's like over two hours for sure. Yeah. And I really liked the family dynamic, like yeah. all that resentment just boiling oh, and boiling. It's so uncomfortable. Yeah. Where you it, feel like you're at this like bad dinner party. And I liked forever. all the miniature stuff and mm-hmm. I liked 
like the weirdo nightmare imagery at the end. I don't think it fully came together for me the same way it has for some people where like I don't have that obsessive like mm-hmm. attachment to it yet. Gotcha. But I feel like like you were saying, like you could almost study that movie for details. Like I feel like I should so see it two or three more times to like fully soak it in, you know? Right. Let's study all like the weird supernatural parts of it. <laughs> That's what I'm interested in right now. But um so aside from that, I watched this movie called The Plumber. I've never heard of that. What do you think it's about? Uh, it's about an evil uh, slasher, greasy plumber man. Close. Damn. <laughs> um, it's an Australian uh, thriller that is directed by Peter Weir. He did Picnic at Hanging Rock, um, Dead Poet Society, and The Truman Show. So he's done some cool stuff. It's 16 millimeter film, and so it's very like grainy and oh, fun. I love that. And apparently it was like shot over three weeks, which is pretty quick for a movie. And I believe all the people in it were soap opera stars. So highly trained actors, obvi. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's basically about this like young married couple. The guy is a doctor and the wife is getting her. She's a master's student getting her uh, master's in anthropology. And this plumber who works for their apartment building because they're living in an apartment like you kind of see this guy walking and it's like obviously he's like a plumber he has like all his equipment and stuff like that and he just kind of randomly picks a floor so happens to be the floor they live on knocks on their door and he just like invades this woman's life where every time she's by herself the plumber's there and he's basically just really invasive really creepy and he's like oh you know just come to check your pipes and then oh all your pipes need to be replaced so he's just constantly over there and then it gets to the point where he's like asking her questions trying to get on a personal level with her and she's you could tell she's like super uncomfortable with it he brings his guitar to finish the plumbing job and he like starts singing really aggressively in the bathroom it's just super uncomfortable. It's kind of, it reminded me of Mother, where it's like the guest that won't leave, but he's not really even a guest. It's just like, how can you get rid of this guy? And he always comes whenever she's by herself. And then when she like expresses like her frustration and concern to her husband, he's so like preoccupied with his job that he kind of dismisses all of her like anxieties about this guy. And it just keeps getting like worse and worse where he kind of lets her know, oh, I was in prison. And then she asks him about it the next day. And he's like, oh, I was never in prison. So it starts getting really weird. He's like gaslighting her. Yeah, he's crazy. So he does this weird thing in the bathroom where he takes the pipes and he makes them like crisscross from like wall to wall. So you can't even walk in it. (laughs) Like it gets insane. It's like nothing really scary happens. It's just this buildup. And there's like this, um, she plays, because she's an anthropology student, she has like a lot of like tribal kind of like little decorations and stuff like that in the apartment. And she has like this tribal record. And so she plays it and it's like this very intense chant. And it goes on while, you know, she's like kind of, like it'll zoom in on her eyes and it's like tribal songs playing and then the plumber's there and it's just kind of, whoa, I'm going to throw up because it's so <laughs> intense. But it's it's just really good. And it's kind of, it's a very simple situation where you have a plumber coming to fix your pipes 
everyone has gone through that at some point in their life, but it just gets taken to the extreme. And, like, nothing violent happens. That's bizarre. And the ending isn't even that, like, intense. Like, it's a very chill ending, but it just, it's creepy. Because it sounds like those, like, movies like The Ice Cream Man or The Stepfather. Or, you know, like, it sounds like there'd be a body count. Mm -mm, Not at all. It's just sort of like this pain in the ass that's very invasive and won't leave you alone. That's my kind of nightmare, though. Yeah, No, exactly. Where it's like, God, like, how can you get rid of this person? But yeah, it's so if you're looking for something spooky that isn't very violent and gory, The Plumber is beautiful. Awesome. One other thing I want to mention that I watched that I really, really liked. It's a short film um, from 2007 called Madame Tootley Putley. It's um, this stop motion animation and it's puppets, but they have human eyes. Creepy. Like they, they found like people where they took the eyes from them and put them like in the puppets through like digital animation. And like they use their body movements for the puppets. It's so creepy. That is so creepy. But it's like, a, it's like seven, I want to say it's about 17, 18 minutes long. It's silent. It follows Madame Tootley Putley, who's this woman who is on a train. It's very, like, Hitchcockian. You don't know where she's going. You don't know why she's on it. She has, every like, every possession that she owns with her. So you're just, like, kind of, like, what's the deal? Like, there's, like, a lot of mystery to it. And then there's just this very, like, intense train ride. And it's sort of, you know, the music is very creepy. And everything's just really mysterious. And it's hard to figure out what's going on. But that's what makes it cool and creepy. It's good. Cool. Yeah, the uh, human eyeballs, though. I've never seen something like that before. And it was really, like, that whole, like, uncanny feeling of, ugh, oof. All three of those are, like, unconventionally creepy things. It's super creepy. They're creepy in unexpected ways. Yeah. Very into it, though. Yeah. What's up? What were you watching lately? (laughs) Well, I've been taking it light. Sure. uh, Because I was, like, preparing for the zine fest and then tabling and stuff. But I was also thinking a lot about, like, obsessive artists Mm -hmm. like people who do these like small art projects that nobody cares about uh, (laughs) and like do them with a passion one of them is something you've seen before (laughs) we talked about it a lot last episode you and i recorded together when we were talking about billy madison yes i kept referencing freddie got fingered a bunch (laughs) and i hadn't seen it since high school but i felt like it was like this very specific version of like absurdist over the top comedy (laughs) he's an artist yeah, he's like a he's like an amateur cartoon artist who like goes to L.A. to sell his cartoons as a TV show, and uh, Anthony Michael Hall plays this like really uh, douchey L.A. producer who looks at his cartoons for like three seconds and is like, "It's fucking stupid. It doesn't mean anything. It's complete nonsense." And that happens at the beginning of Freddy Got Fingered, and then the movie that follows obviously is fucking stupid and <laughs> nothing means anything. It's complete nonsense. Revisiting it was really interesting because there were like a couple like edgy kind of jokes where there's like maybe even some like, you know, ironic racist punchlines and stuff that like hasn't aged particularly well. I hate when that happens. We like rewatch a movie and you're like, it's going to be so cool. And then. But it really was one of the funniest fucking things I've seen in so long. (laughs) Like disregarding a couple jokes that didn't land particularly well in my gut, you know. I also just laughed so hard for so much of the movie that I was crying and had like a headache when it was over. I like I can watch that scene where he's making that really big cheese sandwich so much. <laughs> I can't remember Rip Torn's line. Like Rip Torn plays Tom Green's dad in the movie, and he's like this like 
bigoted bully. He's complaining about how his friend's son is like a CEO of big companies. And mm-hmm. he's like, but my son can make a cheese sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know. I just really respect Tom Green's like dedication to this like cable access show that like no one could possibly care about as much as he did. And then he turned it into this weird little empire where the he, Tom Green show. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then the cable access show got picked up by MTV. Oh, oh, yeah. I didn't know that. So that's why it's like so lo-fi. It's because it was something he was making by himself. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, from the TV show and from the Eminem parody, he got oh, yeah, yeah. this like major comedy from this like actual movie studio. And it was panned at the time, but it's become this like sort of cult object in the years since. And it's still something I think back to all the time. Like it's a very specific sense of humor. I really respect that dedication to like stuff that not everyone around you is going to value. You know, there's probably a bunch of people who are like, why are you still doing that stupid cable right, show? Like, yeah. Rolling their eyes at them. Right. I really love that movie. Like it really held up to me and I got to show it to someone else for the first time and they laughed just oh, as much. So good. Don't you love that feeling? Yeah. Like nothing's worse than whenever you're like, Hey, let's watch Friday got fingered. And they're like, that was so stupid. And then you have to go, oh, yeah, yeah, it's dumb, it's dumb. I also forgot how violent and gory it is. There's so Ooh, much blood and the, guts. Um, the skateboard incident with the ramp and the leg bone. The the, the baby's birth scene. Yeah, which I forgot there was a callback later where he's about to get a um, receive oral sex on a date. And he pulls up his shirt and uh, he still has the baby's umbilical cord uh, duct taped to his belly. With just like dried up blood all around it. It's a viscerally upsetting film, but there's something about the like aggressive idiocy in it that makes me laugh more than comedies that are like written to be funny. Like yeah. you can't really write that movie. It's it's all in his performance. It's hard to explain funny parts to people too. Like one of the parts that like I like always laugh at like it's hard to like convey how funny it is to somebody it's where he is on the roof in the helicopter and he's like look i have jewels i brought you these jewels it's so funny just the, the way he does it but yeah, it's very when you're matter telling of fact. someone that they're like what and i feel like that kind of absurdism you know you can see it later in like mcgruber or yeah tim and eric mm-hmm. it's aggressively idiotic and it's so highly specific like, no one else could have made Freddy Got Fingered besides Tom Green, who, who <laughs> no. directed it himself. And I just really respect that dedication to something that probably everyone around him told him was fucking idiotic. Uh, the same way that Anthony Michael Hall tells him that at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> it's like um, Laser Cat cartoon. Just to throw this out there, if you're really into Tom Green and Insane Clown Posse, he went with Tila Tequila years ago to the Carnival of Souls yeah, I remember that Nathan Rabin's book. He talked about that. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite, like, I, I guess you would call it, like, a documentary. We should watch it. He made a documentary about it? Like, he filmed himself going oh, wow. to the Gathering of the Juggalos. I need to watch that. And he was, like, you know, going around a golf cart, like, interviewing them and all that good stuff. It's good. And I want to make sure I mention one more thing. It's the thing I'm currently obsessed with. There's this guy from Massachusetts named Matt Farley. Have you ever heard of this man? I don't think so. I heard of him from another podcast I listened to called The Important Cinema Club. They did this whole episode on this like media empire he's built, and they interviewed him. Basically, he makes a living by writing thousands of novelty songs that he sells 
that he uploads to Spotify. And, he, you know, he gets fractions of a penny every time someone plays them. Mm-hmm. So he has, like, I think 19 or 20,000 songs on Spotify. <laughs> what? Uh, and the ways he makes money off of them is really funny. Like, he'll write a song about a meme that's popular. Or he'll write, like, a hundred different happy birthday songs. So if you looked up, like, happy birthday Britney or happy birthday Brandon, he probably has, like, a song on there. And you'll play it. And, and you'll play get, it. Like- or he has hundreds of songs about poop and pee because he uh, knows that little kids will look it up. And me. Yeah, and farts and stuff. Oh, I love a good fart song. So he makes a decent <laughs> enough living off of these novelty songs. And every three or four years or so, he finds the extra money to make a movie. And this is his true passion. <laughs> what? And it's such a beautiful thing. He makes these like <laughs> kind of horror parody movies where... It's kind of like a like a winking like B movie monster pick slashers kind of thing, mm-hmm. but they're so earnest and they're trying so hard to make a good movie. Like they know that it's not high quality, but they're not trying to make it into a joke. And it's hard to describe how wholesome it is, but it reminds me a lot of like John Waters kind of stuff where he uses the same people over and over again, and he literally just makes movies with his own community. Like, a lot of his co-stars are people he used to work at this, like, teen group home with. Oh. Uh, like, his boss from that is in all the movies, and he's, like, this really muscly, weird <laughs> man. Uh, to bring it back to, like, Tim and Eric, it has those, like, very specific, like, weird personalities that you're not used to seeing in movies. Like, old men that smile too much. Yeah, it's like, where did you find this guy? Yeah. And it's because it's people in his immediate circle in Massachusetts. What a good support system he has. Um, I've watched, like, three of them so far. Uh-huh. And I'm just totally in love with this world. Like I said, it's like John Waters. It's like this overwritten dialogue, poorly performed, but, like, not trying to make fun of itself. The one that I would recommend that I've seen so far was called Don't Let the River Beast Get You. It's about this guy who is like a pariah in his small town, played by Matt Farley himself, obviously, uh, (laughs) because he keeps warning everybody about this mythical river beast that has been killing people, but no one believes him and makes a mockery out of him. And there's this like William Castle-style intro where this old man tells you, whenever you see these red lights flash on the screen, that's when the river beast's coming. Hide your eyes, because if you look directly at it, you'll be too scared. Um, and every time the river beast shows up in the movie, there's like these flashes of light to warn you the monster's coming. And you know, it's this like kind of standard Roger Corman rubber monster suit. Like it's not Mm -hmm. scary at all, but the jokes and the camaraderie with his friends and the novelty dance songs in the middle of it are very Tim and Eric. Nice. Uh, and it's just, it makes me feel so good and kind of the same way in like the Tom Green thing or like with, uh, the zine makers I was with all weekend, it's got this like obsessive quality where like these movies aren't making money and he has to like work for years and years on each one and he still keeps doing it. And I find that like dedication, like really charming. Yeah. And something I recognize like from us doing this all the time, like this is a lot of work, the website and the zine stuff and the podcast and everything else. Like it takes a lot of effort. And it's not something, like, everyone values as much as you do, you know? Yeah. But it's still, like, fulfilling in a weird way, the way that, like, all small art projects are. Right. So I've just been, like, really obsessed and, like, delighted by this man that I've never heard of before. Because you're like, yeah, it's like these people you don't know, but you're on the same level with them almost, where I get you, dude. Yeah. I get you, and I appreciate you. 
Don't let the river beast get you. <laughs> Please check that out. It's on YouTube, obviously. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. The version on YouTube has like ad breaks. Uh, they're not going to bother you too much. Or you can like throw them $4 by renting really it on Amazon. I don't care about an ad break. I don't know. I don't get butthurt about it like everybody else. I kind of like it. It keeps me like into like what's going on currently. It depends on the movie. I mean, with mm-hmm. a goofy horror movie that some people shot in their backyard and in the woods, like I'm not going to be pretentious about <laughs> clicking skip ad well kind of would want to buy it to support him too because he's doing something good i think if you watch one or two of them you'll start supporting him because i okay i ended up renting this movie he made called monsters marriage and murder in manch vegas like i Whoa. had no problem paying four dollars to watch that on amazon <laughs> obviously where like if i had watched that one first and that was the price of admission i probably would have been like eh, maybe later Gotcha. But I, I'm totally hooked on this guy's stuff. But now. like River Beast is the one you recommend to watch first. It's a great intro because it really okay. does have, if not only for this like wedding scene where there's like this really long dance party that has nothing to do with anything, that reminded me so much of like Tim and Eric and stuff like that. I think people would have a pretty easy time cluing into it. Nice. And I think he knows that's his like signature film. You know, I think that's the one he touts most proudly. Definitely recommend <laughs> watching that sometime. All right, I will. <laughs> Uh, today we're talking about much more professional productions uh, than, than a Matt Parley picture. Uh, we're going to be talking about Steven Soderbergh's Ocean's Eleven series. From the movie that inspired it to the movie it has spiraled off into after the fact. Uh, we're going to try to do like all of the Ocean's movies in one go. Whew, it's going to be an interesting ride. It's a little overwhelming, especially watching them all back to back, but um, I'm glad I saw them. I've never, I've never seen them. I never would have watched them. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, so I'm glad. Cool. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. We need like a computer whiz. Like one of them Facebook boys. I know everything there is to know about computers, okay? All the Twitters, I know them. But me and Sam just ain't sure we can help y'all. We're living with the Lord now. And now it's time for our regular Movie of the Minute segment. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. And it was my turn to pick. And I wanted to talk about a movie that just barely missed my like best of the year list last year. Sometime last fall, uh, we started talking about Steven Soderbergh because we did Schizopolis as our movie of the month on the website. So we talked about that movie like for the whole month. Mm-hmm. And since then, I've been thinking a lot more about Soderbergh because I loved how weird that movie was. And around that time, he had a new movie out called Logan Lucky that was in the theaters. And he also had uh, Unsane came out more recently than that. Such a good movie. Yeah, I love that one. And, you know, Magic Mike was another sort of recent one that he did that I, I really enjoyed as well. Were both of them Soderbergh? He directed the first one and he produced the second one. Really? I yeah. did not know that. So I've been kind of a budding Steven Soderbergh fan just over the past year, like mm-hmm. going back and watching all these like sort of like weirder experiment films he's made. Today, I wanted to talk about Logan Lucky specifically because we're doing the Oceans movies for our main conversation, and this was the first heist movie I had ever seen from him. I had seen exactly none of the Oceans movies, but there was something about him teaming up with Channing Tatum again in this like sunlit (laughs) southern comedy that seemed really appealing to me. Uh, The movie describes itself uh, in one of the newscasts after its heist as Oceans 7-Eleven. So it feels very tied to... <laughs> That's uh, very fitting. Yeah. And he has like kind of a clever way with words in that way. Unlike Ocean's Eleven, this is not a very like slickly produced movie. It has this bright, colorful, candy 
look to it, but mostly it's this like hangout movie with all these ridiculous caricatures uh, from North Carolina and West Virginia, uh, the two locations of the film. It stars Channing Tatum, Adam Driver, and Riley Keough as the Logan family, uh, and they're trying to overcome a quote-unquote family curse by pulling off this big heist at the NASCAR racetrack. <laughs> and this is supposed to help pay for Logan, for Channing Tatum's character to be able to see his daughter more regularly because he's out of work at the time. Like I said, I really enjoyed this movie. I wish I had room for it on my like favorite movies of the year list last year, but it mm-hmm. kept slipping and slipping down. But I just wanted to know just off the top, what did you think of Logan Lucky? Um, I liked it. I watched it after the Oceans movies. So it kind of felt just, Kind of like how you said, like the Ocean 7-Eleven. It was just like a very, very laid back version of an Ocean's movie, which I liked a lot. And it was a lot sweeter. Like they're committing a crime, but they're doing it for a good reason where you're rooting for the criminal, um, which is kind of hard for me to do in movies. But you can't help it because, well, the main character, Channing Tatum's character, fuck, what was the name again? Jimmy Logan, because his last name is Logan, and he wants to be lucky. You know, Jimmy is just this hardworking guy who has shit luck, and he's trying to be a part of his daughter's life, which is not very common amongst single dads. So you can't help but, like, love him and want him, want everything to work out in his favor. Yeah, just the first scene is him and his daughter working on a truck together. Singing John Denver. Really sweet uh, <laughs> bonding moment. And it's like the the opening is whenever he like loses his job because he's a liability because he has back issues. And it's just, God, like what a shit thing to do to a person. And I don't know. It was just kind of, I just felt so bad for him. And that's pretty similar to the last collaboration that Channing Tatum and Steven Soderbergh did with the first Magic Mike movie. Because Magic Mike is also this, like, really fun, over-the-top movie. Mm-hmm. But there's also that, like, core of, like, economic anxiety. Oh, yeah. Especially with the South, point. you know. And Soderbergh is from, he's partly from Baton Rouge. Uh, so he's, like, connected with these, like, Southern environments more than some people give him credit for sometimes. Something that I thought was interesting was the whole plastic arm situation with Adam Driver, who is Jimmy Logan's brother. It made me think of Moonstruck because there were brothers and one didn't have a hand. <laughs> He's got his wife. He's got yeah, his hand. I know. It just it, it like it automatically like brought me back to Moonstruck for like a good like 10 minutes and I'm like this has nothing to do with it. Anyway, I just I would say Adam Driver is just as funny as Nicolas Cage is in that movie, but I don't think he's quite as like shouty. Right. <laughs> like he's a little more on the quiet side. Which it's fun seeing him as like a quiet, like Southern boy. Because I don't think he's ever played that in any other movie. That's a good question. I know he has like a, a military background. Yeah. Uh, but I don't, I don't know if I've ever seen him play this kind of a, role before. A chill dude. Everybody's so chill in here. <laughs> Except for Daniel Craig as the uh, uh, hot Joe Bang. <laughs> <laughs> he looks crazy. It's so funny because we're so used to Daniel Craig being like, this sleek 007 character and then he's this basically like a, i mean uh he's a criminal in prison with like bleach blonde hair and his name's joe bang yeah he, he specializes in explosions gummy bear explosions <laughs> yeah in his james bond mode he would have fit in better with the oceans 11 crew <laughs> right. but uh i and, thought that was very funny yeah and soderbergh has that kind of like meta celebrity 
um, humor in a lot of his work where he's like making fun or at least having fun with our preconceived notions of different actors. Like he's using our like knowledge of their celebrity to like subvert what we expect from them, which is like always really fun in these movies. And I'm sure fun for the actors to be able to like try something new, you know? Yeah. I think, yeah, that's, that's a good point. Like, I think that was like, that summed up like what I was thinking through this whole movie where I'm like, these are roles that I'm so not used to seeing any of these actors play. So it, it, that in itself was just so entertaining, but I really did like this movie. Yeah, I could see how like maybe this was not the best time to introduce it to you because these Oceans movies have like a very specific pattern because mm-hmm. they're all heist pictures. Yeah. So I don't know, I guess it's kind of a blessing and a curse to like pair it with this because it's like, oh, I've seen this pattern in five other movies in a row. I could see how it would be like a little more annoying here. But it wasn't like... That's what I thought was going to happen. Like, I didn't know what Logan Lucky was about. And I just watched all these effing Oceans movies. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, shit, another heist movie. But it was so different. Even though it's it's about the same thing, it's done in such a different way that it kind of really does set it apart. It's got like a southern drawl to it where it's like taking its time. Yeah. It's kind of like fanning itself. <laughs> and it's a lot of like character-based humor. Yeah kind of reminded me of like Talladega Nights not only because of the NASCAR setting but just because it's really focused on like the jokes more than like the actual heist getting pulled off well and I will say like last year there were like five or six major movies that used uh, John Denver songs in them there was like Free Fire, Okja uh, the Alien sequel had a John Denver song Uh, the John Denver usage in this movie yeah. Made me cry both times <laughs> I saw it. It's so sweet. I feel like John Denver and his music is just so... It's like American as shit. Like his simple, like salt of the earth, folk music. I usually don't care about John Denver at all. Like, Are you a John Denver fan now? No, not really. I just In this movie, know. it's set up and like delivered so perfectly well. That I can't help but be swept up in it, like, you know? I was, like, really into it. Something's happening to me. Like, I saw Shania Twain recently. Ooh. Oof. And I'm like, oh, my God. I think I like Lady Country a lot now. <laughs> she <laughs> so was on maybe. Drag Race this year. Oh, God. They what? Did a, uh, I didn't see it. They did a Denim and Diamonds uh, competition. <laughs> like, basically, it was like a drag show. Everything was covered in leopard. But, yeah. So, I just kind of, like, the whole John Denver thing. I'm like, oh, my God. Before you know it, I'm going to have, like, a cowboy hat. And there's no going back from that. So, did you like this one as much as Schizopolis or Unsane? Or is it a little lower than those? Um, Schizopolis, I liked it, but I would never watch it again. (laughs) And I don't mean that in a mean way. It was just kind of, it was cool. But it's not one of those things I would ever go back to. Unsane was freaking brilliant as shit. This, I would say, a little bit below Unsane. I really liked it. Yeah. Yeah. That's Kitsopolis thing's interesting because it's going to come back later in this conversation. Oh, goddamn. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever want to talk about that again. It's okay, though. Are you listening to me? You're both of you nuts. I know more about casino security than any man alive. I invented it, and it cannot be beaten. They got cameras, they got watches, they got locks, they got timers, they got vaults. They got enough armed personnel to occupy Paris. Okay, bad example. And now it's time for our feature conversation. 
Uh, we're going to be talking about all of the movies in the Oceans series, starting with Oceans 11 from 1960, starring the Rat Pack. So you got your Frank Sinatra, <laughs> Peter LaFord, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., all in their natural environment in Las Vegas, in a pretty standard heist film where they plot to rob five major Las Vegas casinos all at once. Mm-hmm. It's this very swanky affair. Wear a lot of nice suits. It's long as shit. They're really mean to women. It yeah. takes forever. <laughs> They're drunk. It's cheesy. <laughs> what did you think of this movie? <laughs> I did not know that this movie existed until like you were talking about it. You're like, oh, we should watch the original Oceans. And I was just completely clueless. So this is crazy. Like this movie stars the fucking Rat Pack. I was unaware of it. So I love that Ain't That a Kick in the Head song from Dean Martin. And he sings it a lot in here. So that was cool. Other than that, it's super, super boring. It goes um, on forever. The only cool part is like the Las Vegas shows. Because it's like, it's old Vegas. So it's like, you know, all the dancers have these like beautiful like sequin dancing outfits with feathers and all this kind of stuff. And it's just very classy. Everyone's got champagne. One thing um, that I had made a note of that I thought was really cool was um, Jimmy's mother, who is this woman who's had five marriages and she like babies her son and like keeps him around by like giving him money. I don't know. She was like a drag queen in herself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's She was a very cool character in this movie. Yeah, those like Vegas showgirl, like burlesque dancers kind of have like a drag queen history. Yeah. Uh, I'm kind of on the same page though, like. I saw this as like really beautiful sets and costumes, mm-hmm. all the hand painted uh, Vegas advertisements and like the burlesque shows and just the like beautiful sweaters Frank Sinatra was wearing and stuff like <laughs> and people's hot pants. Oh, he was such an asshole. Oh, he's horrible. And I, I didn't. Yeah, I'm not like him. <laughs> I don't have like a Rat Pack affinity at all. Like I don't really care about that kind of music. It kind of sounds like drunk asshole music. It's funny. Like it sounds like something like, I don't know. This is going to sound really mean, but it sounds like domestic abuse to me. Like, it just sounds like (laughs) old-fashioned. Old blue eyes? Yeah. It sounds like old-fashioned, like, dad comes first, make me a martini as soon as I get home. Okay. That kind of, like, the worst leftover bits of, like, Leave it to Beaver America. That's what I hear when I hear Rat Pack music. Okay. I listen to that kind of stuff when I cook. It just reminds me of, like, cooking music. So every time, like, I hear, like, a Frank Sinatra song or Dean Martin... I just like picture like a roast in the oven, but not because someone's making me do it. Right. <laughs> so yeah, you're not that, making that roast for no, someone else. It's, it's a personal roast. And this this is like a <laughs> Whoa. crew of like World War II Air Force yeah. guys who are executing this heist as like a return to their militarism. And it's like a uh, it's like executed as if it were like a military campaign. It's got that like efficiency to it. It makes it obnoxious where I'm like, just get over yourselves. Like y'all did it. Like get on with your life. You were in the military. It's over with (laughs) rat pack. What sucked about this movie. And I think what made it suck is that they spend so much time in the beginning, like introducing us to just a few of oceans 11 crew. Like, we only get to know a couple of them and their backgrounds. And I just, I didn't care about, like, Danny's story. It was just kind of obnoxious, like, how he's, like, kind of using and abusing these women. But they spent so much time on it to where you don't really get to know anybody else. 
and then it just goes straight like that takes so long and then like the very like end of it is very action-packed not very action-packed but like more fast moving than the beginning even the heist part ends pretty early in the runtime then there's like all this like fallout that takes forever and i'm like so we waited like two hours to get to this like 10 minutes of a heist it was just very yeah it's very weird and i guess we should say the title is uh because frank sinatra's playing a character called danny ocean yeah and he recruits 10 other people to help him in this like heist of all those casinos right and the only like woman of note in the film is played by angie dickinson who's like an ex-lover of his uh, and they have like a little bit of like a back and forth verbally, but she really doesn't get much to do in the movie. No, I don't know. Just it's like it's like a quintessential like dad movie, I think. Oh. But it's the kind of movie your dad falls asleep in and is like his special chair, like halfway into it, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's deep. <laughs> Ocean's Eleven from two thousand one was directed by Steven Soderbergh, though, and it's not exactly an exact remake, but mm-hmm. it's pretty similar in plot. But you can tell immediately that it's, like, a little more thoughtfully made. Yeah. It starts with George Clooney as Danny Ocean at, like, this parole hearing in prison. And he's speaking directly to the camera, answering these questions about what he's going to do when he gets out and, like, how he's going to live the straight life. Which we know because we're watching the beginning of a heist movie. That's not true. Uh, But immediately there's, like, at least some sort of, like, visual style to the movie. Yeah. Whereas, like... The first Ocean's Eleven just felt like any old Hollywood I bloated find production. The um the Soderbergh Ocean's movies were more like 007 movies. The style, very 007. The music, um, the way everybody looks and acts is very like very James Bond. Do you like 007? I mean, I don't I don't hate them. If I'm in a mood, I'll watch them. I don't care for those either. <laughs> yeah. Like they're they're like It's okay. I like some of them. It's still like dad movies, right? Like it's it's My dad doesn't watch them but my papa does. So mm-hmm. it's like it's worse. It's a grandpa movie. Yeah, it was it's someone's dad even, movie, oh not God, anymore. Yeah. I, know. I have to remember that I'm dad age now. I just don't have kids. <laughs> oh my god. Someone asked me like, "Oh, do you have kids?" the other day and I like wanted to hit them. You like rushed a little like, bit. I'm a I am a child, you assholes. <laughs> And I'm like 28. Yeah. I thought that what, and this kind of goes through like a lot of, well, the Oceans movie, well, three of them, the 11, 12, and 13, where these plans are made, but we don't know. It's hard to keep up with what the plan is. You just kind of figure out what they're doing as they're doing it. Right. So it's really, really hard to keep up with it. Like, what are they using the drill for? Oh, okay, cool. Like, they don't kind of give you a, a very easy rundown of it. And this one, you hear it in voiceover while it's happening on screen. Which is kind of, it's nice. It's better than having nothing at all. And at least Soderbergh, like, stretches it out. So we're like, the heist itself is, like, a pretty significant chunk of the movie. Mm-hmm. So you get that satisfaction for a much more, like, <laughs> drawn out time. Nobody sings in this one either. Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> no George Clooney um, swooning. <laughs> so George Clooney and Brad Pitt are like the two biggest celebrities. I guess that would be the Sinatra and Martin. Yes. Uh, from the first one. That's why um, yeah, I'd make that comparison too. And Soderbergh's playing like this like meta celebrity game where like Brad Pitt is a card shark who teaches celebrities like Topher Grace and Joshua Jackson how to play cards mm-hmm. uh, so that they look convincing in movies. <laughs> so like, you know, this very attractive talented man is teaching these like less attractive talented celebrities like who are playing themselves how to be better celebrities so it's got this kind of weird like in joke 
uh, at the start of the movie. There's a lot of that throughout these. It's really weird. It just... I like it. It's so... It's, <laughs> That's one of the more interesting aspects It kind of brings me back to, like, reality when that happens. Because when you get sucked into a movie, you're very, like, okay, I'm into the story. I feel like I'm there. And then that happens, and it just throws me back to, oh, I'm sitting in my bedroom eating hot fries. This isn't the coolest thing ever. That's what a lot of people um, kind of knock these movies for, mm-hmm. is for being, like, watching celebrities have fun and watching these like, rich people kind of be smug. And I, <laughs> I can see that. Yeah. That didn't necessarily turn me off because I feel like the movies are, like, commenting on it. Yeah. Like, they're at least aware that these are all, like, very beautiful, wealthy people, you know? Uh, and they're kind of, like, playing off of your expectations of what you expect to see based on that. Yeah. The jump from them being like gamblers to them being thieves is basically one of boredom, or at least that's how <laughs> George Clooney pitches it to Brad Pitt at first. He's like, "The house always wins. It's time for us to win." You know, uh, it's almost like this like vague political ideology about like finally getting one over on the casinos. But it turns out he's actually stealing from this guy who is dating his ex-wife. And that's like the big betrayal that's sort of revealed halfway into the film. And uh, the ex-wife is played by Julia Roberts, who gets about as little to do in this movie as Angie Dickinson did in the first film. (laughs) Right. She like looks disapproving. She goes to dinner. She mumbles some things. (laughs) She like reacts to other people. Yeah. But there's really not much else going on with her in this film, I don't think. And it's mostly like this crew with like, he recruits with like Elliot Gould and uh, Don Cheadle and Bernie Mac and... Carl Reiner and all yeah, these other... Yeah, they don't like, know each other. Like, they don't have, like, a... They weren't, like, war buddies or anything like that. No, they meet at, at a party at the end of this, like, extensive mm-hmm. building a team montage. Yeah. It's like the Avengers. Except the Avengers all each got their own movie, and we're, like, supposed to learn who these people are, oh, like, 30 God. seconds Could at a time. Could you imagine? That would take forever. <laughs> it would take literally 11 movies for us to get there. <laughs> that would suck. <laughs> Uh, what did you think of like the visual style of this movie? Because I feel like that's what people usually attach themselves to. I guess it was very, very sexy and like fancy. I've never been to a casino that is. I've never had that casino experience where people like get dressed up. Who goes? Who gets in a suit to go to Harris and Boomtown? You know <laughs> what I mean? Like I've only been to casinos where people are in jeans and stuff like that. It kind of brings it back to that old world Hollywood style a little bit, but in modern times with a lot of like weird technology. Yeah, the costuming definitely is like an old like 30s people in tuxedos kind of thing, right. which is still holding over in the 60s uh, oceans as well. I don't like the way he shoots the movie, which I feel like is a feature for a lot of people. It reminds me of his movie Traffic, which has this like overly stylized like super saturated colors mm-hmm. uh, it reminds me of like all these post matrix movies like swordfish hmm. and gone with 60 seconds oh and that like you know that that psa that's like you wouldn't steal a car why would you steal a dvd and it's like yeah it's got yeah. this like techno beat and the frame rates all janky for no reason and, and then, like you hear a car rev up in the background yeah and you get really pumped up he's just trying to pump us up to go to the casino and this movie did come out in 2001, so it's, like, right dead center in the middle of all that stuff. So he could have been, like, one of the innovators of that visual style. Ooh. But it's one I don't particularly care for. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think that holds me back from, like, fully embracing this movie on top of it being, like, a dad picture, like a heist movie. <laughs> but I will say that it's not bad. Like, it's it's a little cheesy, but, like, 
Las Vegas is cheesy in general, so it kind of fits the vibe for it to be a little corny. Yeah. And there were like enough jokes and like good times and people I like watching on screen that like I thought it was fine. Would overall. you watch it again? No, I mean maybe in the background on TV while I'm like folding laundry or something. Yeah, that's how I felt with all these movies. Is like this isn't something you would seek out. Like it's Friday night. You know what? I have no plans. Let me pick a movie. Oh my God, Ocean's Eleven. Like, I can't ever imagine anyone doing that. This is where we're going to disagree because Ocean's 12 from 2004, I thought was a goddamn masterpiece. Um, That was my favorite one in the whole. Yes. And yeah. So, okay. I'm so glad we can talk about this. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was having a conversation with somebody, maybe a coworker, and they were like, yeah, the Ocean movies are great, except for that the 12 one. And I was like, that's pretty much the only one that I like really like i liked this one has a 55 percent on rotten tomatoes why it's very divisive and i get that it's a little scatterbrained and a little loopy and it goes on for a very long time and there's this really weird meta joke where julia roberts plays oh yeah a julia roberts lookalike in the film and she wasn't i think she had like just had her twins too and she was pregnant doing the julia roberts being julia roberts thing yeah. That's crazy. So I think people expected it to be this like well-behaved heist picture the way that Ocean's Eleven is. But Ocean's Twelve reminded me a lot more of Schizopolis where it just does whatever the fuck it wants yeah. from like any 30 seconds to the next 30 seconds. It's a, almost like a completely different kind of movie. It's a lot of like flashing, boom, 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 going here, going here, going here. and Yeah, it's got this like freewheeling handheld cinematography where like the movie almost feels drunk like it, it's got all 11 actors from the first movie piled into like a hotel room arguing about how things went wrong or what they should do next and the camera is just sort of like you know Soderbergh's like literally holding it by hand just sort of like drifting from face to face as they argue and you start to get almost dizzying and then there's like all this like different setups for shots that like really don't mean anything besides just looking it's like fucking a lot cool. of like psychedelic shit yeah for sure i was watching this while i was at the laundromat on sunday and i just kind of like oof, like between looking at the washer <laughs> and then looking at this movie it was crazy like um, people talk about oceans 11 being stylish i think this movie is stylish i liked this one a lot and i did like it too because i felt like i was more i was rooting for them definitely more in the first one like the first one i'm just like you're just a bunch of greedy dudes that want to do some stupid shit to get money you don't really need. And to show off, show off for your ex-wife in front of her new boyfriend. Exactly. Whereas this one, it's like, whoa, y'all are being threatened by ex-wife's boyfriend. And this is kind of like a survival issue. Yeah. So like at the end of Oceans, they get away with all this guy's money. Right. And they assume new identities and sort of spread out. And Andy Garcia, who's the guy they ripped off, finds them one by one. And tells them they owe him plus interest like right. by the end of the week or he's going to kill them pretty much. Even though he got everything back from the insurance. Right. Um, so they pull off a series of heists in Europe. In yeah. uh, Rome, Paris, and Amsterdam. The European aspect is so fun to me. Like the whole like, well, the thing in here is they're going to rob a museum. They're going to steal a Fabergé egg. And Eddie Izzard made like this cool like holographic Fabergé egg for them. Like it, it's so f it's fun. It's so stupid and fun. I love that. It reminded me like of the like Italian job or yeah. yeah. I loved having like the European background in here. And the soundtrack has this sort of like weirdly loose psychedelic sound that reminded me of a lot of like '60s Rolling Stones, oh, which has like kind of like yeah. a pulsing 
European vibe to it, but it's also got these like really ridiculously loud organs playing on top of the rock and roll music. And it just makes me feel drunk. Like I really, (laughs) like I got lightheaded watching this and I watched it like early in the morning. I like the jokes in here. The banter was a lot better in here than the first one for sure. And I did not think I was going to laugh for an Oceans movie. And I laughed at the comment where I forget who it was, but they're, George Clooney's they're like oh what are you like 50 and he's like do I look 50 and he's so upset by it and he like goes up to everyone he's like do I look 50 and they're like yeah and that's a scene that has no from the waist up or something significance like that. at all it's so funny though like yeah. I, I laughed out loud for that yeah um so it was a lot more lighthearted. um and the the jokes kind of like the second magic mic yes good definitely. comparison where yeah. the first one was like serious and kind of weird but still okay and then like the second one was just yeah and i thought no the one second one was a masterpiece it's funny. Yeah. yeah it's kind of that's how i feel with these right and i think this one is a lot sharper with its like comments on celebrity too yeah like not only do you have julia roberts trying to steal this faberge egg by posing as julia roberts mm-hmm. uh and getting thwarted because she runs into bruce willis at the museum and can't pretend to be her convincingly any longer so freaking crazy on top of that you have this sort of obsession with the celebrity of pulling off these major heists Mm -hmm. so like thieves want to be known for their like expertise in stealing things Uh, most notably Vincent Casal plays this character called the Night Fox who stages this entire thing where they're in trouble with Andy Garcia so that he can prove that he's a better thief than Danny Ocean. He turns the Fabergé egg theft into this like competition. And it's like all about like proving that you're the bigger celebrity within the thieving world. <laughs> Which culminates in this beautiful gag that I think is my favorite thing in any of these movies. Where Vince Casal is doing that thing that you'll see in a lot of movies from the early 2000s. Where people have to sneak past these laser beams to get to whatever object they're stealing. Yes. And he does it while dancing to this techno song for like three minutes. And it has no plot significance. <laughs> kind of like the uh, jokes about George Clooney's age. Like there's nothing really advanced in the plot or like proven or like disproven by him doing this laser dance. It's just fucking hilarious yeah, to watch. Yeah, it's a good really time. Cool. Yeah, you could tell this was like a lot more relaxed and I, I appreciated that. Also, I did appreciate Miss Catherine Zeta-Jones. This might be my favorite role from her ever. She's great. Really good in this. And in general, the movie just gives women more to do than any other movie in the series until the most recent one. You know what? I haven't seen her in much. This movie and then the one where she's a chef that's kind of mean and then falls in love with the man chef. And then there's the one where she has to get past the lasers and like move her butt weird. Entrapment. That's the one, yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. Cool. <laughs> this might have been a joke about that for all I know. It probably that's was. Because he didn't do. Did he do any laser tricks in the first movie? Yeah, oh. in the first one they uh, descend from the ceiling and kind of do this like Mission Impossible scene. Okay. But this was more entrapment like laser. For sure. Stuff. Oh, that's interesting. And she has a romance with Brad Pitt in this movie, even though she's a cop and he's a criminal. And it's this really like funny. well-staged thing that's like revealed in flashbacks, <laughs> but it doesn't stop the energy of the movie at all. Like the flashbacks are like really exciting and like oddly romantic. It doesn't like pull you back and slows down. It just kind of, it keeps up with the pace, which is really cool. Yeah. I think Soderbergh's best asset is that he's like an experimenter and likes to try new things and sort of like go off on these weird tangents and like 
shoot things in different weird ways. Like you have like Unsane, he shoots things on like a cell phone. Yeah. And then uh, Schizopolis basically looks like home movies, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think this is like the real Soderbergh energy, or at least it's the better part of his career is the weird off the wall shit. He does probably had a good time in in his life when he did this. Yeah. Where I guess you could say that he was experimenting with like newer things with oceans 11. I just think those things happen to be ugly. (laughs) I was more into what he was doing in oceans 12. Okay. So the next one, oceans 13 from 2007. Do we even really need to talk about this? It's like so (laughs) inconsequential. It was so hard to push through this. Like it just felt like it shouldn't have happened. I had the Logan Lucky exhaustion you were talking about while watching this. I was like, oh, this is the last one. I've seen all the other ones. I'm fucking done. And it's just like a very standard comedy centered around a heist. And there's really nothing else going but on. But it's a weird heist where it's like a revenge heist where they don't even like it's not like they don't owe anyone money. They don't need money. Al Pacino pissed their friend off and made him bedridden. <laughs> so they're just trying to like fuck up his casino world. Yeah, they try to ruin his opening of a casino by like making him give away too much money. There is a lot of weird prosthetic shit in this movie that made me very uncomfortable. Particularly the nose on Matt Damon. Yeah. How do you come back from that? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, oh God, it just like that stuff. Like this was just a movie where gag like there was enough gags in the second movie to where it was cool, but this was just like This was all comedy. (laughs) Bed bugs. And, you know, we're going to wear, like, a fake mustache. Or, like, Casey Affleck starting a riot in Mexico. Yeah. Like, it opens with Brad Pitt in the middle of a heist, and he gets a phone call from Danny Ocean, and he just walks away from it. He goes, oh, shit. And that's, like, the whole joke. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know. And also, we were just talking about how great Julia Roberts and Catherine Zeta-Jones are in the last film. Mm -hmm. They refused to return to this one because... The script had them in like really insignificant roles, and they were like, "Well, I thought we were part of the crew, so like, where's our lines?" Oh, like <laughs> and, Julia, you're just going back to dinner, and you're saying two things, right? Yeah, they <laughs> wanted to like sort of shrink them back down to these minor Good for roles. Them. I didn't know that's why they weren't in there. I thought they just weren't scripted. I mean, at the end of Ocean's Twelve, it felt like they were part of like the larger family, right? You know? That's why I like that. It just Ocean's Thirteen just seemed off. Just seemed pointless. I think the one fun idea it might have had was uh, when Al Pacino's screwing over Elliot Gould, the inciting incident that makes them want to pull off the heist. Mm -hmm. Uh, Elliot Gould is a little offended because they're both old timers who've been around for a while. And it's like, we both shook Sinatra's hand. We're both established. yeah. So it's kind of a really kind of funny meta comment to like the series' beginnings. But, you know, that's the kind of stuff it's like, oh, that's clever. But I didn't laugh. You know what they were trying to do in here? This is the movie. We're back to the whole dad movie thing. They wanted all the dads that like all this shit to say, there's our boys at it again. (laughs) That's exactly the vibe I got from it where it's like, it's like this, it almost feels like it's assumed that we know them so well and that like, oh, like watch your boys do some silly shit. Yeah. And that's a movie. It just didn't feel very connected. And it feels like Soderbergh didn't even direct it. Like it feels like it was on autopilot or something like. Mm-hmm. You see a little bit of the uh, double exposure kind of stuff from Unsane, that like sort of yeah. like jazzy, kind of like two images laid over on top of each other. And then the poster for the 1960s film has these like segmented sections of the screen where different images play out separately. Uh-huh. And that's a motif he used visually throughout all the films. But in this one, if you look at the individual frames, 
it's the same image repeated over and over again. They just happen to be on more frames than one. And it's like, what is the point of this? Like, there's just no... It's just so weird. It was definitely like an autopilot movie. I feel like it was just like a money thing. Like, they had the funds to do it. And yeah, it was like, a lot of gas. Let's push out another Oceans before everybody fucking forgets about it and hates it. And then they took an 11-year break before they made another sequel. <laughs> yeah. It's like almost like a... We're going back in numbers. So the next movie was from a few weeks ago. It's called Oceans 8. It's got an all-female-led cast, and it's a little like the sort of Ghostbusters reboot from a few years ago, mm-hmm. where it feels like they're starting the series back over again, with uh, Sandra Bullock playing Danny Ocean's sister, doing the same like exit interview from jail where she's trying to get off on parole. And it's the exact same setup. Yeah. Uh, but this is like a, a sequel and not a reboot. Do you think they'll do like a 9 and a 10? If this one did well enough, I'd honestly Because they, the first, they had the first trilogy, so maybe this will be like a female trilogy that'll go... I'm sure that was part of the uh, boardroom pitch. Maybe that's why they picked 8 and not 6 yeah. or something. We got it figured out. <laughs> uh, somehow George Clooney is dead, which is unexplained between like, the two Thank pictures. God. <laughs> because <laughs> the whole time I'm watching this, I'm like... Please don't let him make like a weird appearance where I'm not dead and I'm going to be in the next one. And they keep teasing it, but it doesn't happen, thankfully. Yeah, thank God. <laughs> as soon as uh, Sandra Bullock is released from prison, she pulls off a few minor grifts. She gets like a hotel room and some food. And The Bergdorf Goodman situation was fucking brilliant. Is that where she goes to the shopping mall? She just goes into the store and grabs stuff like she's buying it. And then she goes to the cash register and she's like, I need to return these items. And the lady's like, where's your receipt? And she's like, they're unopened. I don't have my receipt, but they're unopened. Just take them back. And she's like, well, at least give me a bag. And she puts everything in the bag and walks out with it. Yeah. So smart. And then she ends up using it all uh, in this like hotel bathroom that she didn't pay for, <laughs> uh, taking a, like a really Great. sweet bath. Fabulous woman. Yeah. And then she does the same thing Danny Ocean does in the first movie where she pulls off this giant heist to get revenge on an ex. Yeah. And her heist is sort of a brilliant pitch for like a female version of this kind of story where she wants to steal a diamond necklace at the Met Gala. So you get this sort of like high fashion event that's like very women focused Mm -hmm. uh, for her to build this like all female crew to invade and then steal this necklace that's worth like hundreds of millions of dollars. And we know the plan from the get go and we know what everyone's purpose is. (laughs) Unlike all the other fucking oceans movies. (laughs) So that was really cool. So I'm gathering up front that you liked this more than the other ones. Yeah, It was so good. I went in after watching. So I, I watched it last night actually. So I saw all the oceans and then this was like the end of it. So I've, I've like, Oh, I'm so sick of this shit at this point. And it was so refreshing. It still felt like an Oceans movie, but it stood very well on its own. And it did, what it did was everything that I wanted the other ones to do. Like, give us more character background. Every, I feel like we knew kind of, I mean, of course we knew more about like Sandra Bullock and Kate Blanchett's characters, but I feel like everybody else had enough time for us to get to know them and their backgrounds and I like really appreciated that. And it's a really cool cast. Yes. Uh, like okay, like you said, Kate Blanchett, who looks like she's dressed like Charlize Theron in Atomic Blonde. Amazing. Uh, that blue suit that she wears, the yeah. Met Gala. Whew. And then you got what Aquafina, Rihanna, Sarah Paulson, mm-hmm. Helena Bottom Carter. Yeah. And then to me, the MVP of the movie, Anne Hathaway. And uh, Mindy Kaling. Oh, Mindy Kaling's. Yeah, yeah she's, she's so funny. What did you think of Anne Hathaway's performance in here? Um, I loved the full turnaround where she starts off as they're using her um, because she's this, you know, bitchy, 
celebrity and they're using her to basically get this necklace from Cartier and she eventually becomes part of the crew. I don't even know if I would call her bitchy. She's like just really needy and like fragile. It reminds I guess in my mind that's what bitchy is, but <laughs> I'm just you know, whenever somebody complains yeah. a lot and they're like, Oh, like tell me I'm pretty and I'm better than everybody, I don't know. She's definitely vain. Yes. But that's like her job to be vain. And <laughs> I don't know, I just thought it was like a really brilliant continuation of like Julia Roberts making fun of her own celebrity mm-hmm. in uh Oceans Twelve and yeah. and the other Soderbergh movie Full Frontal. She does the same kind of thing. In this Anne Hathaway is sort of like playing into this like public perception that these she's this like woman who tries too hard which was really bizarre criticism of someone whose job it is to try uh <laughs> but she plays it up in this sort of like almost drag queen kind of way where she's like doing an overtop version right. of Anne Hathaway and it's seriously the funniest stuff in this movie to she me She does I love um she's putting on like this like hot pink lipstick and Helen Bonham Carter is like oh and she's like what do you what do you think about this and she's like Barbie and she's like, oh, but in the good way. And Anthway is like, oh, you're so nice. Like, she loves that compliment. That was like, that was funny to me. She practically comes when she puts the like necklace on for the first time. She's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, lucky you. Uh, it's such a great, like, over the she's over great. performative femininity yeah. uh, in the film. I wasn't expecting her to like, I thought that, like she was going to be this villainous character, mm-hmm. um, but she ends up not being, which is really nice. The only villain really in the movie is the ex they're like sort of like pinning this heist on. Right. But he's really not around. It's not it's not really like them getting one over on anybody as much mm-hmm. as it is like a hangout movie. Like, yeah. You're just sort of watching them plan and execute this like rob job, <laughs> this like robbery. At and, the fucking Met Gala. Yeah. With Kim just, Kardashian in tow. I will say I didn't recognize a lot of the celebrities that I probably should have. I recognize, like, I think Heidi Klum, Kim K, and I think that's it. There were definitely a bunch that went over my head. Yeah. A lot of them look the same. (laughs) (laughs) That's true, too. I will say, just from a stylistic standpoint, I don't like the way this movie's shot at all. Really? It reminded me a lot of Ocean's 13, where it's, like, shot to be this, like, modern comedy it's got all these like ridiculous like whip pans and zooms and stuff. Everything feels like overlit and flat, and it actually kind of reminds me of like the Alvin's and the Chipmunks movies. Like <laughs> what? It's it's shot so. I didn't. That's the last comparison I thought you would ever make. I swear, I watched the one that John Waters was in, and it's got the <laughs> same like kind of generic pop music, and it's like overlit and just looks like very like flat. But at but the it's same so time, clear. yeah, but almost like a mall. Like when she's in the shopping mall early in the movie, it feels uh-huh. like you're there. Like it feels like you're at like a makeup counter at like a Dillard's. I like that. I, I think <laughs> it works well in this movie because I think this movie works best as a comedy. Mm-hmm. Like this isn't like a heist thriller so much as it is like a hangout comedy where you like learn to love all these different characters. Yeah. And it's really easy to love them because the cast is so goddamn good. Their plan is really cool though. Like the whole, like there's a, you know, the glasses that scans the necklace and scans it just in time. And there's a machine that makes like an exact replica yeah, like of a 3D it. Printer. Yeah. Like just all the cool, like tech stuff in here is really neat. Yeah. I think, once it gets to the actual heist part too where you like watch their plan in action mm-hmm. that part is like genuinely exciting yeah 
in a way, I think that all the movies on this list kind of are. Like, once you're actually watching the plan get executed, it's entertaining. Mm-hmm. There's just, like, so much time before and after in all the movies that you need something else. So whether it's, like, Soderbergh sort of over-directing and, like, with Ocean's 12 where he's, like, sort of, like, distracting you with all these, like, different tangents mm-hmm. that just sort of, like, go off in their own experimental directions. Or in this movie, it's the direction is so flat but what fills that void is just how cool all the characters are. So like yeah. you're not really excited by the filmmaking, you're excited by like Aquafina and Rihanna being and how so awesome cool. They are. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I I get that. I overall I am positive on this movie. I'm not saying I'm not. It's just yeah. like early on before I started getting to know the characters, I was like, "Oh, this is shot so weirdly." I didn't. Pay, I guess I'm have to watch it again. And the pop music is so generic and bland. It was fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> it grew on me a lot. I like also how like when the heist is over with, the movie doesn't end. Like it's almost this whole other part where James Court. Corden? Corden. He comes in and he's like this insurance fraud investigator. And then that's like a whole other story in itself. Which happens in Logan Lucky too, right? Hillary Swank is this kind of like oh, investigator. Yeah. yeah. They come in before the end. Very cool. But yeah, I like how we get to kind of see how it ends. Like they don't just get the money. I mean, get the diamond or whatever and everything's over with. And one of the coolest parts was that montage of elderly women selling the diamonds. <laughs> I thought that was really yeah, brilliant. And it was a funny gag. I so think, funny. I think that's where the movie like shines is like when it's really funny. Yeah. And the cast sells the comedy. It had very well. good, like funny parts. Yeah. Like I can't, there was not really any weakness with like any acting or comedy in this movie. No, I don't think so. It was really good. And I do, th- I can just repeat myself and say Anne Hathaway was like the standout as far as like the comedy goes for was, me. Kate Blanchett, I thought was so good because you're, I'm so used to seeing her in roles where she's like a mother or, you know, like a, a socialite or something like that or whatever. But she's just this like kind of like rough and tough. I liked her style. I thought she was like the most stylish one. Oh, yeah. She wore these like awesome like suits all the time and, and cooked really good food. Overall, looking at the series, right? Yes. I think I'm in a, like a weird spot where I really like the deviations from the original one. Like, I think Logan Lucky and Ocean's 8 and Ocean's 12 are all really fun, like, subversions of this, like, heist picture. Yeah. But, like, Ocean's 11 has to exist for those to do something, right? Right. Like, they all have to play off of that movie. It's like like the birth canal that these (laughs) films came from, so we can't hate it. And then the movies that, like, just sort of play it straight, like, the original Oceans or, like, Oceans 13. Yeah. Completely uninteresting to me. Nope. I guess it's a question of genre, like, because if I liked the heist picture as a genre, I would like all of these movies because they all follow a very similar pattern. Yeah. But, like, we don't like that. We like horror movies. We like sci-fi movies. So this We is- like fun shit. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't care if you're going to rob a bank. I really don't care. And that's kind of goes back to that same, like, James Bond aspect, too, right? Like, that's a different genre than what we usually like. Right. But I do think Ocean's 8 is very funny. I'm glad you liked it. I liked it a lot. Yeah. Like, a lot. I don't think it's going to be on my top right. for it's the year. It's a fun movie, though. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed it, and I would totally recommend it. I was surprised to see that a lot of theaters weren't playing it. Like, it was just playing at Elmwood, really. Well, I think Incredibles 2 was such a big movie, it pushed a lot of other movies out. I haven't out. seen any of those. I have no interest. Um. Me either. It got me <laughs> mad that, like, I couldn't go to Britannia to see Ocean's Eleven, because the Incredibles 2 was just rubbing its ass on everything. 
and I do think that Ocean's Twelve unfairly maligned. Like that is a really fun, well-made, so cool. weird yeah. picture. The Magic Mike Two. Right. Exactly. Of the Ocean series. It is so good. And it's always really fun to see Soderbergh waste other people's money. Yeah. Like that's a really expensive, over-the-top film that feels like schizopolis but i would buy it on dvd so he's gonna make his money back i would buy that one and watch it again i think it's fun and i've seen logan lucky three times now and i'd watch that one again yeah it's kind of weird to be in the spot where like you really like the deviations but not the actual core thing you know do you feel like worn out from heist at this point like oh yeah i won't be able to watch anything like that again for years like i don't think i'll ever touch a james bond movie for like another 10 years but I could watch Ocean's 12 a couple more times because it's such a densely packed movie with all yeah. these like weird little details that I don't even feel like I absorbed it all just watching it once. Right. Because there's so much stupid shit going on. But anything along the lines of like Ocean's 13 or something, like I'm not watching any of that anytime soon. God. That was such a disappointment. Would you show up for an Ocean's 9 if it gets a sequel? Yeah, I yeah. would. I love that whole cast. Like their their chemistry was really good too, where mm-hmm. I think it was better than... I don't know. It seems like all the other Ocean's movies where it was like, oh, a bunch of like handsome, sleek looking men doing stuff that like handsome, sleek looking men do. And this one is just kind of like a hodgepodge of like fun ladies. And like, I feel like I connected more with their characters. I don't know if it's because I am a woman, but they were more relatable. Yeah. I mean, the Ocean's original crew, I can, there's maybe like three of them that I thought were interesting. I thought Don Cheadle's like fake British accent was yeah. annoying as shit. Yeah, uh, that was so weird. Yeah. I had to look if he was really British. You know, because I'm like, did I miss it's that? It's Don Cheadle. I know. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't find it convincing at all. I thought it was like really annoying. Okay, cool. <laughs> that was surprising for me. Would you be more interested in an Ocean's Nine if Soderbergh directed it, or would that not change your interest level at all? It didn't feel like a Soderbergh movie. Mm-hmm. Like you were kind of saying, like his style was kind of missing from it. So. I mean, I mean, I would I would go see a sequel, but if he was directing a sequel, I would go see it like opening weekend. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm on board with whatever he's doing now. Like I'm I'm hooked now. Yeah. It didn't take very long. Gotcha. You're like a Soderbergh fanatic. <laughs> I'm working on it. There's still like so many of his movies I haven't seen. I'm like working my way up. I didn't know about any of them <laughs> until like recently. I mean, surely you've seen Aaron Brockovich. It seems like a I movie. Did not you would know like. that was a Soderbergh movie. Yeah. Julia Roberts. Yeah, Is that his exactly. chick? Okay, well, how would you feel about doing another movie that's in the theaters next time we talk? Um, Down to Clown with that because Homegirl's Movie Pass is back up and running. Yes. So I'm out of control right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do something next time uh, that's current because this was kind of cool to do something like that instead of like getting stuck in the past, you know? I know. Let's do something kind of kind of fresh. And it's fun seeing stuff like on the big screen. Like I always like notice more than I would if I'm like watching it on my iPad or on my TV or something like that. Like there's, I don't know. I, I take it in better. Yeah. There's no distractions. There's no phone. Right. Your dog's not trying to lick your face. Yep. That happens a lot. Yep. <laughs> right. Cool. Well, we'll be back in about a month with another current movie that's yes. currently on the big screen. Yes. Woohoo. Bye, everybody. Right, goodbye. Bye.